Sola Scriptura is one of many ideas that emerged from the Protestant Reformation. This definition, this general definition of the Protestant Reformation was stated last Sunday, but I'll read it again. The widespread theological revolt in Europe against the harmful abuses, false teaching, and control of the masses by the Roman Catholic Church. So basically believed that five of these solas emerged from the Reformation. And Scripture teaches many of these other solas in detail, and that's what Martin Luther really kept referring back to Scripture, as did other Reformers, that we are saved by grace alone, that's one of them, through faith alone, because of the work of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. All can be found taught very clearly in Scripture, but they have diverged from that in the teaching that went on at that time. Now, a practical definition of sola scriptura that we looked at was Scripture alone is authoritative and sufficient for the faith and practice of a Christian. And that was something that was taken from a sermon of a guy, a guy in Massachusetts in the 1700s. Our lion and lamb statement of faith says things similarly, adding a little bit more detail. The scriptures in their original autographs, meaning that which was actually recorded by one of the authors, are the fully inspired word of God without error, absolute in their authority, and complete in their provision for godly living. All we need for spiritual matters can be found in scripture. And again, it doesn't mean that's where we're going to find everything that relates to science, engineering, medicine, whatever it else. That's, we don't look to scripture for that, but for anything that provides spiritual edification, it can be found in scripture. We don't need to look elsewhere for more. That doesn't mean somebody can't help us understand it better, but they're not going to add to it as part of their teaching or subtract from it. Now, that's what we believe, that's what Sola Scriptura teaches, but I thought it would be interesting to find a very recent survey, and I found one from April 2017, the Pew Research Center, what do Christians think about Scripture? These are people who identify as Christians. Now, this would be everything, all Christians. This survey would include Protestants and Roman Catholics. So here's what we find. 39% believe it's the literal word of God. We fall in that category in this church. I hope every person in this church falls in that category and not just the leadership. 36% believe that spiritual truth is present in Scripture, but it's not literal history. That becomes a dangerous way of thinking, as we'll see. 18% believe that it was written by fallible men. There may be valuable lessons in Scripture, but we, they would not trust much of Scripture, that 18% other than the lessons that you might take out of it. And 7% of Christians don't even have an opinion of what the Word of God is as to falling into one of those categories. So almost 4 out of 10 people believe that it is the literal, literal Word of God, and I would say it would be hard to believe in the concept of sola scriptura if you were at 61% that would not fall in that category. And the percent who read the Bible weekly, evangelical Protestants, 
again, we fall in that category, 63%. About two-thirds, almost, would spend some time in the Bible each week. Again, we hope that we do a lot better than that. We say daily is important. Mainline Protestants, 30%, less than one-third. And Catholics, one-fourth. Because, as you probably know, they depend more heavily on the teachings of men. Okay, so that's like where the world is, the Christian world is, with respect to their depending upon Scripture. Oh. Okay, yes. I believe it is, although I'm not 100% sure. I think it is. Why? Do you believe there's some uh, difference with respect to those answers if we look outside of America? Would you hand him the mic and let him elaborate on that? I think that's probably... If you know something about it, Larry, go ahead, share. Well, definitely, because in a large part of the rest of the world... uh, and there's a lot of restrictions on the availability of Scripture. Okay. And so, you know, a lot of people don't have a personal copy of their Bible, for example. And so that, yeah, that it had to be a study just of the United States. Okay. All right. So, you know, part of what we're really emphasizing today is defending the concept of sola scriptura. And again, we've mentioned the uh, main defense that you may encounter in your world, uh, although it could be the Protestant world too, but if you have interaction like I have had with with some Catholic friends, uh, they kind of go to the top, and so we're going to spend a lot of time with that concept of defense this morning. We've got the liberal Protestants who have a low view of Scripture. Again, they're the ones who don't take it literally. They're the ones who think they're valuable lessons, but they would be somebody that you uh, might need to defend the idea with. And uh, they have a tendency to want to eliminate or interpret the supernatural. That is one of the things that you may deal with, whether it's creation or just the miracles in general. And then they are also the ones who you may encounter that are wanting to eliminate those parts of the Bible that seem to not fit with their cultural preferences or what the flesh is calling them to do. Then we have these other people who may even be more conservative Christians, but they believe in other reliable sources. The charismatics, those who believe that gifts of prophecy, words of knowledge, things like that are still active and they could potentially add to Scripture those kinds of beliefs. And then general revelation, people who may be conservative in general, um, they look at the cosmos and then they want to reinterpret anything that has to do with, say, the age of the universe, when the creation took place, um, some of those creation issues that play into uh, their beliefs. And then angels who are still revealing truth now, as I prepared for this, I came across this term shown at the bottom up there, prima scriptura. Had anybody ever heard of that? I never had until I prepared for it. So nobody else had either. And what that 
really means is that Scripture, in their minds, is above other sources. But they believe that there is... Those believers and other reliable sources can fall into that category of someone who believes in prima scriptura because they would put scripture first, but that God is continuing to reveal things I guess they would be like the Bereans, who would still judge whether it's consistent with Scripture. I didn't study it in detail, but that was a new term, and I thought I'd share it with you because you may come across it sometime. They seem to want to put Scripture first, but yet they're allowing other new revelation into the picture. Not sure how that works. Okay, now here's where this morning we are going to uh, try to have some participation I don't know, if do we have just one mic out there? You, Nicholas, the only ro- we got a couple mics that'll be roving, so I'm gonna be looking for a little bit of input for this, and the first thing we want to do is try to get you to think about some of these kinds of uh, straying away from sola scriptura ideas, and these pictures sort of portray a few of those things, but what are the dangers of straying from sola scriptura? So um, we really had a handout prepared, but it didn't get, get printed. So I apologize for that, for something to write on. But take just a minute or two, maybe talk to someone around you, and then I'm going to ask you to share some ideas before we get into much detail about what are dangers of straying away from Sola Scriptura. So just take a minute or two, and then I'll see what you all think of, and then I'll have some ideas. Okay, I know I didn't give you a lot of time, but I'm hoping that you have a few ideas that you're willing to share. You can either just quickly give an idea or you can elaborate if you would like. But if anybody wants to say what you believe some of these dangers could be and why it's so important to hold to this idea, please share. Okay, I think you, you, you have no datum point if you are not sola scriptura because it's kind of whatever works good for today or whoever you've listened to recently, rather than a solid. This is the this is the pen. This is the corner. Okay, and we go from there. Okay, good. Others.
Scripture has a way of convicting us. God has a way of convicting us through the Scripture and pointing out it's that I think if we're just meeting with other people and only talking with other people, maybe other people might be reluctant to point out in our lives. And so um, okay. that's a, we can be getting off into all sorts of areas of, of wrong thinking or sin, even uh, defending ourselves. And, and um, yeah, Scripture points those things out. Yeah, good. Others, anybody think of any other dangerous outcomes? Brian? It really protects us from, you know, hollow theology. It gives us access to the to an objective witness against our living and, a, and against our leaders. So it empowers us to go directly to the source and... Um, as far as judgment and righteousness is concerned, it treats everybody the same. Yeah. Good ideas. Good points. Chad? Hmm. Check, check. Okay. Okay. Yeah, while I would uh, agree that without Scripture alone, we have no standard... Uh, in this day and age, it seems that the culture, uh, the world culture, is becoming more and more unified in a, a single anti-Christian belief. So without a, uh, an anchor, it is very easy to get swept up into the common belief. Good. Okay, um, they're all good points, and, and I've got a few that I've listed here, too, that we'll just go through quick, which... Uh, overlap with some of what was just said, that uh, people are deceived and abused by fallible, confused, and evil men. You know, the motives of uh, someone who may be adding something to Scripture, taking away, or whatever it may be, uh, can be for various purposes. But sometimes it is a sincerely held concept or idea. Other times, someone is trying to abuse and manipulate as we talked about the indulgences last week, as a good example of someone who would manipulate. You're tossed to and fro. I think, Doug, that's kind of what you're saying, too. Uh, No firm foundation to stand on and uh, bouncing all over the place and what you might believe from one day to the other. Uh, The gospel can be twisted and perverted. For example, the works-based concept of the gospel that is added in. God and his word decreases. Human ideas increase. If we believe it's God's word, God breathed, and and then some new human idea comes along the way and reinterprets it, God becomes less, and human ideas become more. And wisdom and truth is replaced by tradition. Brian, you mentioned this hollow and deceptive philosophy or ideas. And pride increases, and humility decreases when... Scripture, we think our ideas or the ideas of some other person may be considered higher than what Scripture says. That is very prideful. Okay, so there's a a few additional ideas that relate to the dangers of not... Bob. You know, I think not only is the the concept of sola scriptura important, but it's important to teach it. Uh, Sandra and I were talking. We both grew up in church, but don't recall hearing a lot about this. And 
I mean, the churches we were in taught nothing but scripture, but didn't talk about the fact that there are other ways of looking at life. And personally, when I was in my mid-30s and my life was falling apart, um, I suddenly came to the conclusion I knew what I believed, but I had no idea why I believed it. And I was you know, hearing other things. And so I think it's I, I, one of the things I appreciate, appreciate about Lion and Lamb is we spend a lot of time talking about other views and how they differ, how they differ from Sola Scriptura. And so I think that's, that's important to do, to, to inoculate, especially young people, uh, to the, the other ideas that they, that they ought to hear in church first so they can hear why they're wrong. Good. Thank you. Okay, so um, the rest of this morning, we're going to deal with these four questions that relate to defending Sola Scriptura. And you'll see, we'll, we'll kind of expand upon what the question is uh, in, in a little more detail than what you may think the quick answer would be. But these are the four questions. Does the Bible itself teach Sola Scriptura? How do we know which books of the Bible are divinely inspired or canon? What are the primary Catholic challenges to Sola Scriptura? <clears throat> and how would you respond to liberal Protestant objections to Sola Scriptura? So we'll hit these one at a time. <clears throat> and again, uh, just a quick question to you, if anybody has a quick idea on this one. Do you think the Bible itself teaches Sola Scriptura? Nobody's ready to answer that one right off the bat. Brian maybe has an opinion. Want to get a mic to him? Nick, Nicholas, do you have it? Or somebody? <clears throat> well, your third point is going to... There's some feedback going on. Um, what the Catholics teach about it actually reads into this a little bit as well. So um, one of their primary arguments is that they say that the Bible does not explicitly teach Sola Scriptura. And we'll come to those That's details right. next. That's right. And, um, you know, we look at 2 Timothy 3.16 as, you know, one of the key verses or, or passages that speaks to that. And um, all scriptures God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So um, you can read it. It's right there. Okay. And we will, we're going to elaborate a bit on some of those points that he just mentioned there. Um, I, I've actually looked and tried to find some good teachings on this question. And what I found, the basic answer was explicitly and formally, no. And, you know, by explicitly, I mean they actually reference this concept and say that. They, that that's the answer. Yeah, we're teaching that. Implicitly and logically, yes, absolutely. And then you may say, okay, show me. Show me where that, and that we can find this implicit and logical teaching within Scripture. Now, here I list some general ideas about why I think that the Bible implicitly teaches sola scriptura. Jesus often said to look to the Scriptures for truth, and we're going to look at a few of of where he said that. It is written, is stated 90 times in the New Testament by Jesus and the Apostles. That is a clear general reference to look to the scriptures for truth. Jesus said tradition should not be elevated above scripture. We're going to talk more about that oral tradition that becomes canon in 
or equal or even above Scripture. Do not go beyond what is written is taught in the Scriptures. And the written word provides all a central doctrine. I think the Scripture would emphasize that point. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take the first one of these and the last one, and I'm going to give you some biblical evidence of those. And the other three will be kind of merged into the teaching, some about the Catholic Church and some of the others, but they'll be covered in a little more detail, but not directly immediately. They'll they'll pop up as we go forward this morning. So some biblical evidence for sola scriptura. Again, Jesus' teaching emphasizing our need to check it out in the scriptures. What does it say? Be like, he didn't say this, but I think we have all learned that we want to be like the Bereans who checked out everything Paul said to make sure it was consistent what was taught in God's word. But here are three times where Jesus said to look to the scriptures. Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. but Jesus answered them, you are wrong when he was talking about marriage and the re- resurrection because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That one statement by Jesus to tell them to look into the scriptures to learn about marriage and resurrection obviously implies much greater value in checking things out in the scriptures because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God which can be found in the scriptures. So he's saying more than just, here's where you'll find the answer to marriage and the resurrection. And then in 20, Matthew 21, 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Again, talking about himself. Knowledge, learning about him is found in the scriptures. And then Luke 10, 25, 26, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he implied. How do you read it? Again, here's one question about eternal life, but yet Jesus implies much more in making that statement, referring people back to the scriptures to find answers. So Jesus certainly is teaching that the answers that we seek about truth and just all the spiritual matters to equip and everything else can be found in the scriptures. I've said, too, that all essential doctrine, all that is needed for faith and practice to live spiritual lives, that's that practical definition of sola scriptura. And what it really comes down to is we find all essential doctrine taught in scripture. We don't need to look elsewhere to find the essentials. They're all there. And that's one of the reasons why when we tell you the leadership of Lion and Lamb tells you to spend time in the Bible, it means the whole Bible, not just the parts that are most interesting. We have a tendency to have our favorite parts of the Bible. I I know I do. I bet you do too. We may not all have the same favorite parts, but we need to read the whole Bible if we want to have the full teaching of God about truth because we may miss some. So if you haven't read the whole Bible, bring to mind the parts you've never read and maybe develop a reading plan.
for those parts that you have never spent any time in because, you know, I bet you'll get something out of it that you didn't even know was there. So some essential doctrine. Here's some verses worth spending time reading through them because then I'm going to ask you a question to search these verses for a minute. Second Timothy, uh, this is what Brian uh, mentioned. From infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Acts 18.28, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. John 8.31, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Question, look at these verses and tell me where we, what are some of the essentials, those essential doctrines that these verses that say, read the scriptures, are pointing out or emphasizing can be found in the scriptures. And, and so go ahead and uh, look at them. When you find one and you think it's an essential that they're talking about, raise your hand and, and please identify it, what it is you think you found there. Okay. These, um, let me rephrase that question. You know, the, the point is that the essential doctrine can be found in Scripture. Each of these passages refer to the written word in one way or the other, and they also say that if you search the written word, you're going to identify or learn some of those essentials, and they actually identify some of those essentials in these passages. So, that it, and that's what I'm trying to, Willie, there, if anybody else has one too and you want to go next, so go ahead. So the Acts 18 one, uh, when it says proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah, um, the logic is pretty clear that that, that that's where we can find that Jesus was the Messiah is in the scriptures. Right, that's an essential. That yeah. Je- believing that Jesus is the Messiah and the scriptures prove it. So that's that's an example of what I'm talking about. Paulette? Uh, I don't know if this is what you're asking for, but First John 5.13 about salvation? Yeah. I mean, you're using the word salvation, but where it says eternal life, mm-hmm. yeah. So you can know you have eternal life, and you can even know the idea of what eternal life is through the scriptures. In John 8.31, it said, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth. Yeah. And that's pretty clear. Yeah. Knowing the truth. Kevin? And Acts 18 talks about that Jesus actually was the Messiah, so that's the truth that Jesus was, who he said he was. Yeah. Any other ones? Go ahead, Antonia. 
So in the Second Timothy one, it talks about how all scripture is God breathed. So if we believe that God cannot lie to us, that means that all scripture is completely true and the foundation for all truth. Yeah. Well, these are ones that I thought, um, you know, reading the scriptures make us wise for salvation. It, so that what we need to know to be saved can be found in scripture. Um, when I, maybe I shouldn't have used the term essential doctrine, but all we need for faith and practice, again, can be found in Scripture. That Second Timothy equips us for every good work. Remember, our good works are to be performed so that not only to show our love and obey God and all of that, but so that others can see our good works and glorify God, knowing that we are a person who trusts in him. Again, we can know we have eternal life. We can know Jesus was the Messiah. We can know the truth, which is a very broad statement of all the truth we need to know can be found in the word. Okay, <clears throat> how do we know which books of the Bible are divinely inspired? Well, this one, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and go through some of these ideas that I found um, Norman Geisler, some of you know who he is. I, I took these from him where he did a lot of teaching on this discovery process that took place to discover what was truly God-breathed and what should become the canon of Scripture. He had a whole lot more to say than just what is listed here in these four ideas. But remember, last week I talked about how the Reformers or the Protestants today believed that it was a discovery process, that canon or scripture, true scripture that was God-breathed was determined by God, but then we had to discover it. Man had to discover what was it that God determined to be scripture, holy scripture. And so here's four ideas that Norman Geisler came up with that I thought were uh, good, although they certainly uh, require... Um, some influence, I think, by those who went to work trying to make this discovery take place with, from the Holy Spirit's guidance. Is the book written by a prophet or a chosen apostle? And we'll talk more about that when we look at the Catholic arguments. Who are those people, the prophets and holy apostles? Is the author confirmed by signs or acts of God? You know, miracles, wonders, healings. Is, content, is the content of the book truthful and consistent with other scripture? We're not going to have a book that somehow contradicts another book. They have to be totally consistent. And does the book have the power to edify, equip, or transform? So that was some guidelines that the fathers who determined canon considered when they evaluated different letters and, and books that were written to determine which should be considered part of the canon. Did you want to say something, Phil? Yeah, I think the idea that, uh, we tend to not consider canon as an idea today because we have the received books of the Bible, but the reason there was a problem and that they had to consider it was there was a time when all sorts of books were 
either accepted or taught or and nobody knew what was what and that's what brought about the discovery process to yes. determine what was canon and we're going to come to those books that got rejected in, right in just the but it's because of the heresy that mm-hmm. that the process came about yeah okay um the question comes up though too when this whole concept gets the, discussed is they didn't have the new testament when jesus referred to the scriptures and, um, you know, the Bible that Jesus had, if you want to call it a Bible, would have been those Old Testament prophets and the law. And um, so the question needs to be raised, because you may hear it someday, is the New Testament also Scripture? Well, we have, uh, I, will, I will answer generally that we would say, yes, the New Testament falls into this definition. And we have a statement by Paul and Peter, and then we have the church fathers who really went and different councils, and then the controversies that started that helped us determine uh, whether this is a true thing or not, whether the New Testament is scripture. Can anybody, um, I know this is a hard question, think about Paul's or Peter's teaching on this topic. Chad, do you have one that you can remember? Uh, are you asking, like, Second Peter 3.16, where Peter confirms that Paul's letters are Scripture? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I'm going to pop that one up here in a minute. We'll read it. But, um, yes. So let's look at, let's look at what um, Paul said and what Peter said. There's not a whole lot of places we can look to, in Scripture to find this clearly... Uh, stated, but I think we have enough to believe that the New Testament should also be considered Holy Scripture. Paul said in 1 Timothy 5.18, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's Old Testament from Deuteronomy that he's quoting. But then he says also, And the laborer deserves his wages from Luke 10.7. At least my studies did not find that in the Old Testament. It found Paul referring to a New Testament statement by Jesus. So he is saying the scripture says if we're going to trust Paul as a legitimate author of God-breathed Holy Scripture, then he is referring to Jesus' word as, uh, as scripture. And then as Chad said, 2 Peter 3:15 and 16, Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable men distort as they do the other scriptures. So Peter seems to be making the statement that Paul's writings, which... Maybe one of you can remember what percentage of the New Testament was written by Paul, but very much of it. So he is referring to Paul's writings as scripture. Now, the church fathers, the church councils that took place, uh, and it really started early. As you can see, some of these church fathers started as early as 95 A.D. and through 185 A.D., we're starting to identify the New Testament letters or Gospels as being 
Scripture, books that should be considered on equal par with the Old Testament. Multiple councils were, were held, and I, I am not 100% sure of, of when it finally got narrowed to the books we have today, but there was a Council of Hippo in A.D. 390, which seemed to be key when we ended up with what we have today as a Holy Scripture. Now, even books that ultimately were accepted were controversial as to whether they should have been part of the New Testament. And the books listed here were those that were most challenged or debated among those church fathers. Hebrews was, James, you know, even Luther had some problems with James. Does anybody remember whether he finally came around and accepted James, Mike, or anybody? Can can you remember? I know he debated that, whether James should be included because he thought that it might be teaching too much of a works-based salvation. But even 2 Peter, 2 John, and 3 John all were not immediately accepted by everyone, but ultimately they, they were accepted. Uh, but there was an awful lot of work that went on beginning less than 100 years from the time, probably from Jesus' death, uh, Clement was starting work on this about 60 years later. And then it happened over a period of 100 more years. So this didn't happen real quickly. The whole thing took several hundred years from uh, the time that the autographs were prepared until it was actually established. Now, maybe this is what you were referring to, Phil, when you talked about books that were kind of elevating and being considered. The Apocrypha, and there's a list of the books that make up the Apocrypha, and what that really means is things hidden or secret. So there's all these books that uh, were also being considered along with the uh, both Old and New Testament books, but the Old Testament was accepted much earlier. It was most of the debate was all about the New Testament and whether it should be considered. But those books that we're looking at there are part of what the Roman Catholics would accept as canon. And the Council of Trent, 1546, look at the timing of that. Any idea why it became so important to them in that date, 1546, to establish these books as canon. I mean, it followed Martin Luther by uh, his nailing. That was 1517, remember? His nailing of the uh, 95 Thesis to the church door. They were trying to emphasize some of their points, and these books supported some of those points. Not completely, and they're not valueless. I guess I want to say that. that there are some things of value in some of these books, history especially. There's some history presented of the intertestament period that can be found in some of these books that might be of value, but whether they should be considered infallible, God-breathed scriptures, another whole question. So you might someday, if you haven't already, has anybody read any of these books ever? Yeah, we've got some people at least who spent some time in them, and there is some valuable history to be gained, but let's not elevate them to God-breathed scripture. But why are they unreliable? There's inconsistencies and contradictions. Some examples, prayers for for and to the dead, the concept of purgatory, worshiping angels. You know you've 
if you've read God's word that angels say, don't worship me, you know, I'm paraphrasing, you know, your worship shouldn't be for me. Uh, but yet that occurs in some of these books. This idea of paying alms for forgiveness of sins is addressed in some of these books. That's fighting back on what the reformers said about indulgences. Larry? Um, Over that the, uh, all these books that are there are Old Testament. They were written before Jesus. They were part of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So we're not talking about things like, uh, oh, who's that guy that wrote the Da Vinci Code? I can't remember his name. But we're not talking about things like apocryphal gospels, like Gospel of Thomas or uh, any of those things, or New Testament books. Yeah. Those are all things in the intertestamental period that you're talking about there, but between Malachi and Jesus. Yes. Yeah, good point. And one of the other things is, one of the uh, things the church fathers considered, too, is did one of the New Testament books refer to another one? Were they talking about each other? And in these uh, books, even though they are older, they were not referred to by any of the other New Testament authors. Okay, what we're going to do here now is I've got five ideas that uh, Roman Catholics oppose to Sola Scriptura. We've got a verse that supports their position, and then we want to say, why is it a fallacy? And so um, these first two are the ones that I looked at last week in my teaching message, so I will kind of go more quickly over these. And then the others we'll spend a little more time on. But uh, the apostles, they say the apostles supported oral tradition. And they use multiple verses, but here's one. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teaching we passed on to you, whether by word or by mouth or by letter. So they say that uh, the scriptures say that oral teaching is equivalent to the written word. Why, quickly, anybody, why is that a fallacy? Willie? Uh, we, Nicholas, would you stay up and so we can handle, get the mic to people? So I think context is key. Paul's writing to the Thessalonians. And when I read that, I always envision Paul being the preacher teacher. And he's saying, um, don't forget what I taught you. And, you know, maybe I wrote it down at times so you would remember it, but it's kind of like what you're teaching now is don't forget. So I don't think it has anything to do with oral traditions. Right. The continuation of oral tradition. Todd, do you want to say something more? Uh, I was just thinking I don't know much about the oral traditions, but um, how many of them came directly from people who were interacting directly with Jesus? whether it was the apostles or Paul who had a revelation or Jesus spoke to him, like those oral traditions that are mentioned, did they actually come from those first-generation believers who were there and interacted with Jesus in some way or form? Right. They, what they're doing is they are taking Paul's oral teaching and extending it to what they would call the uh, successive or the 
apostolic succession, as we looked at last week, that was going to continue, they expand that concept of Paul talking about himself or the other apostles who had direct encounters, eyewitnesses, with somebody who hundreds of years later would carry that same authority. And uh, Jesus said in Matthew 15, 3, you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition. And most of those oral traditions, they may have gotten written later, but they began uh, through oral means. And then uh, and Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Again, an indication of why that authority existed and their oral uh, comments carried more authority. Okay, this is the other one, number two, that we looked at uh, last week. The church was giving teaching authority for all wisdom. The Catholics tend to uh, use this verse, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. They stop there um, because they're talking about this wisdom coming from the church, but it says also to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. I'm going to quickly hit this one just for time's sake, but as we looked at last week, they have a misconception of the church, first of all, that it, 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 from an authority perspective at least they have a misconception because they give so much weight and authority to the institution, to the magisterium. And they forget the part, second half of that that he's talking about where they're talking about this wisdom uh, being revealed to angelic creatures in the heavenlies to learn more about God by actually seeing how God is at work in his body. So they misuse that verse. Now here's the ones we didn't look at last week. Uh, Sola Scriptura promotes the vision and lack of unity, and they look at Ephesians 4. And he gave the apostles and the prophets to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by the wind of every doctrine. So they're saying that these apostles and prophets are keeping us from division. And then they point to all the Protestant denominations and all that kind of thing, and the lack of unity. Any reason why you can see that as a fallacy? Anyone? can't have unity above truth. Okay. Do you want to elaborate a little bit? Is that not working, that mic? The light's on, but there we go. I mean, uh, the doctrines in Scripture, uh, you know, I mean, if we, the whole, the today the Catholic Church is moving towards an ecumenical movement that incorporates all kinds of anti biblical doctrines that, I mean, that's the whole anti-Christ movement is we're all one and we can all get along, but we can't sacrifice. The truth is the truth. No one comes to the Father but by Him. If we sacrifice the true doctrines doctrines in Scripture, we've lost the gospel. Okay. Did anybody see the news article about a whole bunch of conservative Catholics kind of rebelling against the Pope right now? It was in the news yesterday and today. Um, because they said he is diverting even from their own teaching to give you an idea that um, you know, the opinion is that every pope is a successor apostle to the beginning, Peter. 
And so they carry infallibility when it comes to certain teaching that they have present. And uh, so we're seeing at least um, within the church some division within the Catholic Church that's going on. And the very thing they claim to avoid is happening. Uh, and it's in the news this weekend. The, um, the opposite is actually true. Division occurs without that firm foundation that Doug was mentioning right at the beginning this morning. Without a firm foundation to stand on, we are much more easily divided because we don't have something to look back at as the objective truth. And uh, Jesus made a comment about, he said, it is written, it will not, it will be written or spoken. And um, I'm going to move on because I'm not going to get to the end instead of elaborating on that one. But, but let's look at number four. Sola Scriptura is unworkable and it promotes anarchy and private interpretation. And they referred to that first church council in Jerusalem um, when it's, they said it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So the council is saying they didn't act solely on Scripture, but they heard from the Holy Spirit speaking. And, uh, of course, that is good that they heard from the Holy Spirit. So the Catholics would say that, you see, it isn't just Scripture but it's what we have revealed to us that matters. So what they're assuming there is that the Holy Spirit is speaking only through, this is extending that idea of the Holy Spirit advising that first church council who consisted of some of the true apostles, but it only they extend that to today where the Holy Spirit only works and speaks through this magisterium, through the Pope or the Cardinals or whoever else it might be. But John 14.26 said, The Holy Spirit will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. And in John 16.13, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. I feel you can confidently believe that you can hear from the Holy Spirit as well as just that magisterium. It's just as the church leadership can. The Holy Spirit convicts us all, speaks to us all, but does not necessarily add to what has already been revealed. He helps us understand. Willie? Yeah, I'm trying to sit here and think about how I could refute the argument that they're saying in a logical way. Um, but I think the point in what you just said, right when I raised my hand, so I had to keep my hand up, um, is that if the Holy Spirit speaks to me some sort of what I feel is truth, we have to take that statement or that, that truth that I proclaim or whoever, and we have to compare it to other scripture. So we're not really inventing new truth. It's just explaining old truth that's already been revealed. Um, but like you said, the Catholics would say is, well, we can add to that truth is where we're dangerous. I've got one more. Um, Sola Scriptura fails when people cannot read or have no copies of Scripture. And they look at Romans ten fourteen. How can they believe in the one whom they, in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? So we do have a problem of uh, people not having the written word in their hands translated. Oh, go ahead, Eric. Hey, Bill. Yeah, um, 
on the private interpretation argument, I've kind of heard this on a podcast before that uh, on that argument, um, you can't actually escape private interpretation because even if they're explaining it to you, you have to interpret it, what they're trying to interpret. So Even what the man is presenting to yeah, you, you're still you, doing your you, internal evaluation. You're never escaping that in private interpretation of what, yeah. trying to understand what someone is saying. Yeah, good. On this one, though, how do we answer that, that um, oral is needed where a person doesn't have the written word to look to? Tammy? I don't think I'm, I'm not answering the question that you have, but I'm asking if um, they're saying that scripture fails when people cannot read or have copies, why do they not encourage their followers to actually read their Bibles? Well, in some places they may not have the written well, word. I understand that, but here in the United States, Catholic Church does yeah. not encourage people to read their Bible. So why? how could they use that saying that, well, if everybody was reading or had copies of the scripture, then it would be fine. But that's not what they're really saying. Yeah, it's... Well, in, in uh, Romans 1, you know, it talks about, um, you know, that what may be known about God is plain because God's made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that man is without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. I mean... Yes, truth, that, truth that is revealed. But that's that would be uh, general revelation. Rick wanted to say something. Yeah, it's interesting that um, the scriptures that they're using to prove their point against Sola Scriptura, um, they, they stop very sh short there because in that whole passage there in Romans 10, Paul is, he refers to Scripture three times and he says, the Scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And then, well, how are they going to know unless somebody preaches? Um, and, but they stop right short there. Um, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is, as it is written, mm -hmm. how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Yeah. And just because Scripture is spoken doesn't mean that it's not sola scriptura. Exactly. Good point. Larry? I guess Rick just said it there. Yeah, what are they preaching? They're preaching God's word. Yeah. I mean, the truth that comes from God's word. And we, and, and what I would say is we are called as teachers or leaders or even friends of others to preach and teach God's word. If somebody can't read, then you read it to them. You know, you can, you are called to do that, but you are stating what has been revealed in God's word. You're not making it up. And, and that's what some of these verses are saying here. We're warned not to add or subtract, but we are certainly called to read it and teach it exactly as it has been revealed. All these passages that are shown here 
are warnings against adding or subtracting from God's word, but we are, we are to be God's tools for those who need to hear what Scripture says if they either can't read it themselves because of some physical problem, you know, they're blind, or whatever. But they've got to hear God's word somehow, so you may be the one who uh, reads it to them. Okay, um, I'm not going to have time to go into all these in detail because I want to spend some time on the Protestant thing at the end. But uh, there's a lot of doctrine that has been added through oral tradition that uh, was added mainly by... It, it becomes written at some point, but it becomes added... It, it starts out as whether it's a pope or a group in, of the parts of the magisterium who come up with these. But here are some things. And then real quick, I'm going to just show you some verses that that would say why this is inconsistent or non-biblical ideas, these things that have been added. The adoration of Mary. Jesus said, when they were saying, blessed is you know, the womb from which you were born, he just flips it and says, no, rather are blessed are those who obey God, you know, rather than the womb that bore him. He's not coming down on her, but he is not elevating her. The identity of priests. Uh, Peter said, even, even though um, he said that all believers are living stones, a royal priesthood who offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, it isn't limited to only the person who ha- carries that title priest. Observance of days. And there's you know, nothing wrong with having certain celebrations and things like that, but Paul thought that the observance of days, months, and seasons was kind of a weak aspect of our, of our faith. The same as if you're Weakness causes you to not eat certain foods and things like that. The definition of saints, you know, their idea of a saint would be Mother Teresa or someone who has performed in their life in a way that somehow elevates them to that status. But Paul said every believer who is part of the church is a saint. And then the calling of men father. And Jesus said, call no man your father on earth. And again, I don't have time to elaborate on these, but the point I'm making is oral tradition has added non-biblical ideas that have become very important. They may have gotten rid of the concept of indulgences it, to some degree, but not totally. You know, there's still some subtleness that goes on that would be a carrying forth of that idea of indulgences today. Yes? If you're really Catholic today and you want to sacrifice for one of your departed loved ones, you pay to have a mass said in their honor. So it's a form of indulgence that yep. still goes on today. Exactly, and that's what I was meaning. That's, thanks, Mike. That's one of those things that they may not call it the same, but yet it's still there in some ways. Okay, I only have one slide on this. We've got seven or eight minutes or so to talk about this before we wrap up. But um, our response to the Protestant opposition to Sola Scriptura, again, reminder of where those main areas of opposition are, is the philosophical naturalism gets in the way of believing that, that Scripture can be taken literally where it should be taken literally. We have to be careful, you know, to not take every single verse as literal. We have to understand our Bible and such that we can know what is literal and what is not, but yet they are throwing out a whole lot of things that we would consider literal history because of philosophical naturalism. 
cultural influences, all the marriage things, all the sexual behaviors, all kinds of things that are just running wild in our society right now. Um, they don't like those parts of the Bible. Charismatic gifts, that can just get out of hand. I'm not going to say that, that the spiritual gifts are not still active because at least I'm one of, of the leaders here who would say that God may still have those at work, but I don't think he's going to reveal anything in a spiritual gift that would be conflicting to his word. So if somebody's going to speak something, it ought to be just speaking his word, perhaps in a slightly different way. And then the angelic revelation. Um, so I'd like to open this up for a few minutes of conversation of whether, have any of you ever had an encounter with a Protestant friend that has said, you know, I just can't believe those parts of the Bible. That there's, um, for one of these reasons, or maybe even another one, where you get into this debate with them that we can't take it all. They're more in that category of, say, 35 40% that said there's some good lessons here in the Bible, but we can't take it all, literally. Anybody ever had a conversation like that with a friend that you had to somehow respond to? Brian? So this has happened a lot when I was in college, but um, a, a lot of the curriculum and things like that, and I've probably talked about this before, that are in a lot of the sciences there, spend a fair amount of time talking about how you can be a Christian and yet hold to some of these more worldly positions on creation, evolution, cosmos, miracles, things along those lines. And it's, it's kind of a feel-good message. It's saying it's like, okay, what you learned as a child is, is okay, but there's more to it than that. Right, so um, they're not in opposition to each other. They're, it, it's totally okay to call yourself a Christian and yet believe these things that maybe don't hold up with the Bible. And um, in uh, interacting with several of my classmates and um, teachers and things along those lines, we'd have discussions about that kind of thing. And looking at um, Genesis, for instance, and the flood accounts, all these types of things out there that uh, a lot of people want to just brush under the table because it's a narrative and, um, you know, saying it's like, well, we don't, we don't have any evidence. If, if scientists say that the world is 7 billion years old, then how can we look at the Bible and say that that part of it is accurate? Mm -hmm. And the, the great part is that um, we do have a lot, of, a lot more scientists now. They're looking at the, the actual science and, and weighing it in, in truth and saying, hey, there's good reasons to believe um, that that account is actually true, and we can actually use that as a historical record to point us towards the, the truth and following that truth. So um, I was talking to a few people about that. If, if you guys haven't seen that, actually on Netflix now, there's a, a series out called Is Genesis History? It's by Del Tackett, The Truth Project, and if you haven't seen that, I really strongly recommend it. It's really, really a good program. They draw from a lot of other places that talk about those types of things. Watch it with your kids. It's, it's pretty good. Um, the other aspects of this, I'm talking too long now, but I have definitely had these conversations. It is truly a uh, slippery slope that you enter onto when you start saying, well, these parts of the Bible need to be re-evaluated, reconsidered, reinterpreted. They were somehow added 
Where does it end? Where does that slippery slope that you've gotten onto end? Larry? When I was a new Christian uh, 45 years ago or so, um, I went back to my church, Mainline Church, and uh, asked for help growing. And I was told that, uh, that the Bible contained God's word, but it was not God's word. It was a mixture of man's word and God's word. And it was up to me to figure out which was which. And Boy, I, that's pressure. <laughs> we had one pastor who uh, believed that the New Testament was from God, the Old Testament was not. We had another pastor that believed the Old Testament was from God, but not the New Testament. We didn't, for several years, they didn't have a pastor who believed that hell existed or that Christ was the only way. Um, one of the last pastors, uh, I, I asked him, what do you do with passages like in Second Peter and, and in Jude? Uh, and he said, well, there's a lot of the Bible I just can't preach. Wow. Dangerous places to go. How would you like to be the per? How do you, if, if you wouldn't believe in Sola Scriptura or believe all of God's word is God-breathed or all of the Bible is God-breathed, how would you ever figure out what parts were and what parts weren't? So that's why we do stand on the shoulders of those church fathers who helped us discover what was God's word. But, you know, we can do some of the same studies ourselves. We can look at some of those same criteria that they looked at and uh, become even stronger convinced that what we have before us now that we call inspired Holy Scripture is good. There's a lot of good references out there. Del Tackett is teaching it. He's good. I don't know if everybody's been through the Truth Project, but he's really good. So I would emphasize what Brian was saying. I haven't seen that, but uh, I would say if he's involved, it is worth spending time in. So uh, we are right on time. If anybody has any last comment or point or question you want to make before we wrap up, who? Uh, Mike? So I don't hold it. Okay, sorry. The uh, I was just going to build on your question, um, uh, an experience I had with uh, a good friend of mine from law school who uh, is a Christian or was a Christian and uh, came from a pretty conservative denomination and uh, eventually came out as a homosexual. And I had a conversation with him, well, how do you justify that with Scripture, which I know he believes, and he said, well, I just don't believe those parts of it. And it, and I pushed in a little further, and what ultimately, where that came from was he didn't want to believe that part of it. So he was putting what seemed right to him above Scripture in those areas, and it, and that was the whole deal. And, was he happy? Uh, said he was. Well, to judge that part of it but but it is easy to judge when he's putting scripture um, below what his personal wants and desires are and you see that in these other areas um, someone wants to believe um, in egalitarianism over complementarianism and it, when you push in um, it comes from a desire to want to do what I want to do as opposed to what God wants to do and that's where the uh, the standard or uh, the uh, 
the objectiveness of scripture is really valuable because that's what our sinful nature wants to do. We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it, and scripture convicts and helps us have that standard. So. Exactly. The opposite of when Jesus said, not my will be done, but your will. It's not your will, but my will is what these people are saying, and, and that's what we got there. So let's end in prayer. Um, thank you, Lord, for this time together, for the uh, just leading us in learning and in uh, sharing with one another. We pray, Lord, that, um, that you would help us all to just stand firm on your word. Teach us to, uh, to not doubt. If there's even just a little seed of doubt in any one of us about the trustworthiness of your word, we pray, Lord, that you would take that away, that you would, uh, your Holy Spirit would just uh, give us peace and comfort and just the contentment we need to uh, just lean totally on your word and, and all the value and benefit that comes from that to just help us to follow you, obey you, and, and be at peace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.